if you would, please find your seat. Our reading this morning continues in the book of John, verses, or chapter 7, verses 16 through 31. If you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a, whole man's, a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. On Friday, February 8th, 2013... I met with a college freshman for lunch. Doing, doing campus ministry in the Northeast is very difficult. Only about 1% of the students on that campus would say that the Bible is God's word and Jesus is the only way of salvation. 1%. And so often, when I often sit down with students for, for the first time, I do so with the intention of sharing the gospel with them. Because either I may not get another meeting with a student, or they may never hear the gospel again. This was a typical first one-on-one meeting that I had. I sit down with a young man, and he's never 
read the Bible, never even owned a Bible, and he's heard a little bit about God and someone named Jesus. The conversation's going well, and I get to the point of why humanity needs a Savior because we sinned. And he turned. He began to lose it on me. Scott, do you actually think God condemns people for their sin? Why would a loving God do something like that? Doesn't that mean God just hates everything about us? You believe in a God of hate. And he's getting anger until finally he yells at me, well, if that's who God really is, that's not a God I want to worship. He takes his chair that he's sitting in, and he throws it against the wall, and he walks off. And before he goes through the door of the dining hall, he gives me a parting gift and flips me the bird. What does this illustrate? What this shows us is that that young man didn't believe the real Jesus. He believed in phantom Jesus, a Jesus of his own making. And today's text pushes us into similar territory and calls us to ask the question, do we know a phantom Jesus, one that's created in our mind or through our tradition, or do we know the real Jesus of history? Kids, eyes and ears, look at me. I want you to hear, see if you can find three words in the sermon. The first is incognito. Incognito. I'll explain what that means at the time. The second is scorpion. And the third is phantom. Incognito, scorpion, phantom. Today's text continues from last week. The brothers of Jesus go from Galilee to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Booze, but Jesus stays behind so that he can go down at a later time incognito. Did you hear that, kids? Incognito. That means that Jesus wanted to go down secretly so that no one would know that he went to Jerusalem. And Jesus stands up in the temple and he begins to teach in verse 16. My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. And what's the crowd's response? An odd response, isn't it? In verse 20, they say, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Why would they say that? I don't, I don't think I've ever said to anyone, you have a demon. This, no, that's not true. I probably said it to my kids when they are about two. <laughs> um, that's okay, I'm an excellent exorcist. That demon got right out. Um, no, I, that's an odd thing to say. It was actually an odd thing back then. Why would they say that? They either thought that Jesus was actually crazy, um, or, and I think this is it, they thought his, his condemnation of them in his teaching in verses 16 to 19 was so absurd that it was satanic, okay? Just to remind you, the word Satan in Hebrew means accuser. 
Jesus is accusing them of not keeping the law of Moses and of trying to kill him. Now we know that it wasn't the crowd that was trying to kill him. It was the Jewish leaders. But Jesus is speaking to everyone here. He's speaking to the crowd, and of course there are Jewish leaders scattered in throughout it. So if Jesus is malintent in accusing them of not keeping the law, mind you, in the temple, it would make sense that they would accuse him of being demon-possessed. Here it is. This man, the accuser, is accusing us in the law, against the law, in the temple. You're possessed by a demon. You know, I think you and I read this, and we say, how could anyone accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed? Right? That's not a thought that a Christian has. I, I would suspect that there's not a Christian in the world who thinks that Jesus has a demon in him. Let's take it a little bit further. Let's say, let's say, um, let's say you are demon possessed. What's the point? What's the point of a demon? It's to lie to deceive, to harm. The very thing that the father of demons, Satan, does, right? To lie, to deceive, to harm. Don't we sometimes think that Jesus' deep intent is to deceive or to harm us? Let me, let me share an example of this. Um, Someone gave us a real excellent Christmas gift, and we were so overjoyed by it. And you know what my, my reaction was? What's going to go wrong? Right? Now, what, what happens in that assumption? Okay, I got something really nice. My baseline belief is, okay, how's God going to take it away? Right? That's assigning malintent to Jesus. That's my experiential expression of saying my Savior is demon-possessed. That he actually wants to harm me and not love me and secure me. And if we were to go on, um, I mean, we could think of many different things, right? Where you, you have a picture and conception of Jesus and the Father in heaven thinking, yeah, but is he, he said he loves me. I'm a mess. Does he really love me? I can't get rid of this habitual sin. Maybe he wants me to have it. There's a lot of application in here for this. Because I think in, in my conversations with you and knowing my own psyche, there's many times that we assign malintent evilishness to Jesus. So I don't think they were that different from the crowd. You know, what's interesting, uh, continuing on, is that Jesus ends up never answering the question and instead moves to verse 21. 
I did one work, and you all marvel at it. I did one miracle, and you all marvel at it. The crowd isn't amazed. Uh, the crowd, they're not amazed at his teaching. They think he's crazy. They're amazed at what he did, the miracle, right? And then Jesus moves into verses 22 and 24. Moses gave you circumcision, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. The Jewish leaders got really hung up on when Jesus healed the invalid on the Sabbath at the beginning of chapter 5. And then later in chapter 5, look at verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The thing that kicked off their desire to want to kill Jesus was that he healed a man on a Sabbath. So what is the issue that Jesus is speaking to in verses 22 to 24? What he's speaking to is this conundrum in the Mosaic law concerning both circumcision and the Sabbath. Okay? Circumcision, and the text says it, it began with the fathers, it began with Abraham, but it was commanded in the law as well. So in Leviticus 12, 3, it says, On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Any, any male born there. Here's the command for the Sabbath. The Sabbath, the Sabbath was the seventh day of the week. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Don't work on the Sabbath. Circumcise on the eighth day. So what happens when you have little baby Hebrew boy who's born and his eighth-day circumcision is scheduled on the Sabbath. What do you do? Do you circumcise him and work on the Sabbath? Or do you circumcise him the day before or the day after and then not work on the Sabbath? The Jews at this time believed that circumcision took absolute priority. So circumcisions did occur on the Sabbath. And it's not the case that circumcision was allowed to happen on the Sabbath. Rather, if the eighth day of the boy's life was on the Sabbath, he must be circumcised. And so, what Jesus is showing them, there are some cases, albeit rare, when, all, when Jews must work on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is saying, if circumcision must be done on the Sabbath, how much more must a man's whole body be healed? Then he says, you know, judge with just judgment or right judgment. And I kind of take that as, don't be dumb, follow your own law. If you can do circumcision, I can heal a whole man. So with Jesus rightly uh, con having condemned their anger at him, the crowd uh, begins to make connections to why the Jewish leaders want him dead. We see this in verses 25 to 27. 
Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. The crowd here thinks that they know the situation correctly. First, if the authorities aren't saying anything to Jesus as he's teaching in public, they take it as a tacit endorsement that this really is the Christ. If the authorities aren't arresting him, it's probably the, probably the Christ. But what it exposes them to, second, they don't know where Jesus is from. And third, they say this bit that no one will know where the Messiah comes from. I want to focus on that, on verse 27. You know, at, at this time, Judaism wasn't monolithic in their belief about how the Messiah would appear. There were many prevailing views. The Magi in Matthew 2 clearly believed that he was going to come from Bethlehem. Um, there were some Jews who, who thought Jesus was going to appear like in the book of Daniel, in a way kind of on a cloud from heaven. Uh, and you have other beliefs. An early rabbi by the name of Zerah said this, there are three things that come unexpectedly in life. The Messiah, a found article, and a scorpion. Words to live by. <laughs> the Messiah, a found article, and a scorpion. You know, clearly the crowd agrees with this rabbi. But what it shows is they actually don't know Jesus at all. They know phantom Jesus. We can tell from Jesus' response in verse 28 where it's best to take his words as irony. Verse 28, you know me and you know where, I'm, where I came from. It really should be, so you know me and know where I'm from. Do you? Because it clearly don't. On a literal level, they knew that he was from Galilee, Right? On a spiritual level, they didn't know him at all. He was a man performing signs and teaching in the temple. I wonder if that's many of the ways that we know Jesus. You know, I ask the kids, like, how do you know about Jesus? And you've trained your children well. Because they almost all said, the Bible. And that's why in Trinity's worship services, we read the Bible, we preach the Bible, we sing the Bible, we pray the Bible. Because that's the only way we're going to get to know Jesus. And not some phantom Jesus that our culture prescribes or that the Bible Belt shows. And we'll get to that in a little bit. So with this, the clear knowledge of the crowd doesn't actually know him. We move to the final part of the passage. Starting in verse 28, <clears throat> excuse me. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, do you? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I, can't, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. 
Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And the way that that last sentence was written written in the Greek, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Surely not. Jesus' teaching gets continually more inflammatory by claiming that they don't know the Father, but that he himself was sent by the Father. So what do they do? They seek to arrest him. But yet again, sneaky Jesus is not able to be caught because it's not yet his time, right? To me, the most striking part of this, of this final passage is verse 31. Yet many people believed in him. And they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? We see here that the people believe in him primarily because of his teaching. Although they do say when the Christ appears, will he, he do more signs than this man has done? Only a handful of this crowd in Jerusalem has ever seen Jesus perform a miracle. Most of them would have heard about it. Jesus has done a miracle in Jerusalem. He's done them in Galilee. He shows up to the Feast of Booze. It has been months and months since he has performed a miracle in Jerusalem. And so you have this crowd now saying, this guy has performed all of these signs, but most of the people there wouldn't have even seen it. What I find so interesting about this particular verse is this. In Galilee, Jesus does lots of miracles, teaches offensive things, and people walk away. In Jerusalem, Jesus does no miracles this time, teaches offensive things, and people believe. Just days before, he was in Galilee doing miracles, teaching offensive things, and in chapter 6, verse 66, the people walk away. And here, he shows up. He hasn't done one miracle yet, this time in Jerusalem. He teaches even more offensive things, and people believe. People believe. What does that say to us? What does that say to us? Are we hinging our walk with Jesus on what he does for us Or are we simply believing what he says in his word apart from our own personal benefit? Do you follow Jesus because because he miracles you? Do you follow Jesus because you're taken care of? Because you have a nice house? Because it's a respectable thing to do in this part of the country? Do you follow Jesus because it might make you happier? I lo- I'll just share it aside. I love it when I hear like young, fiery Christians, uh, maybe I saw this in campus ministry, you know, say, hey, you really should become a Christian. Like your life's going to get so much better. And in one way that's true, in another way it's absolutely not. 
Yeah. There's, <laughs> yeah, kind of this theology of peace bleeds into theology of health, theology of all those other things. Man, if, don't become a Christian because it'll make you feel better. Become a Christian because it's true. Because you might become a Christian, and like many of us, you become a Christian, you lose a child, you get deadly ill, things get stolen from you, you suffer and you suffer and you suffer. If you're not a Christian, that sin pattern that you keep doing doesn't bother you. If you are a Christian, you're tormented for that. Yeah, don't become a Christian because it's, it's therapy. It's not. Become a Christian because Jesus is true. Because of all of the competing worldviews out there, Christianity alone is the one where there's a plan for the end of history where it's extended to you by grace on the basis of faith alone, and then you have a God who became man to save your soul. It's the only one that offers true hope. Do we want and do we want to know the real Jesus? The one who is true regardless of how, how your life is great or awful. That student that I told you about at the beginning of today's sermon, let me finish that story. Immediately after that lunch, first thing I did, I went and got the chair that he threw, and I put it back underneath the table, and I texted my ministry team, told them what had happened, pray for him. They did. I did. About five days later, he shows up to a Bible study, I'm thinking, this is going to be awful. He's going to yell at me and flip me off at a Bible study, man. Come on. He argues, but he comes every week to that Bible study for the rest of the semester, slowly learning. And he even goes on our post-semester summer retreat. And at that retreat, he knows he gets to know for the first time the real Jesus. And he becomes a Christian. That's a funny thing about a phantom Jesus. Either fashioned out of our mind or by our tradition, a phantom Jesus cannot save you. There's only one can. The real Jesus. Do you know him? Let's pray. Father, thank you that the words of Scripture are true. And through them, we know, truly know, the real Jesus. Lord Jesus, we submit ourselves to you. And ask you to fulfill all of the promises you've made to us. We are in your hands. And we pray also that as we give our tithes and our offerings, that we would give in such a way that we are cheerful and joyful and sacrificial.
This good and kindred, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Your kingdom is forever. Help us to give in a way that reflects that. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.